Hey, everybody, it's Joe Trippi, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. Today, we welcome Ezra Klein, New York Times opinion columnist, podcast host, and author of Why We're Polarized. Uh, and uh, Ezra, I've wanted to talk to you about this for, for a while. I'm glad we, we finally got the chance. Th- thanks for coming on the show. I'm excited. What a what a what a pleasure to be here with you, Joe. We go. Yeah, I go so much further back with you in politics than I do with most people. So I know it's, a, it's, it's an honor. I was thinking about that. I mean, it's been, gosh, almost two decades or something. Close. Yeah, to two you make decades. it. A, you make an appearance in the book. I don't know if you caught that. <laughs> yes, I did. Thanks. I really paid attention to your career the whole way, and now I find myself learning more and more from you. Um, as I read your stuff or, or listen to you, so thank thanks for being on the on the show. And, and here's what um, what struck me. You know, I've been talking about one of the problems I think we have in the country right now is, and particularly on, with Democrats. And I'll, I'll try to keep this not as a partisan thing, uh, but we view the world. You know, we've been in this Democrat versus Republican, left right thing for so long that people kind of who in both parties think it still exists. Um, and it doesn't quite still exist that way. I mean, Joe Manchin reaching across the aisle is not the same thing today as it was would have been two decades ago when you and I first started talking about this. And then I got your insight uh, or book about polarization and the, the difference between the interested and the uninterested. And so now what worries me or what that made me think through is the interested are much more focused on this stuff. The hyper interested are almost becoming radicalized. And then you have this whole group of people in the country who are uninterested and aren't focused on a lot of this stuff or or a lot less focused on it. and. And when one party's sort of moving with this autocratic impulse and I'm disinterested, I'm not interested because these two parties, they mean nothing to me. That seems like a pretty scary thing to me. And so I wanted to get you on the show and, and talk, talk about it a little bit. Yeah, happy to. So, so let, me, let me back up this theory a little bit. So in, in my book, now out in paperback as of this week with a brand new afterword for anybody who wants to get a, a full working model of how political polarization works in this country. Uh, I recommend it. One of the so chapters is about the, <laughs> thank you. So, One of the chapters no, no, is about the are, media. And we are going to put a link in our show notes to, Wonderful. to the book. I, I really appreciate that. So one of the chapters is about the media. And I am a member of the media. And and one of the arguments of the book is the media is an actor in politics, not a mirror in it. We are uh, a driver of polarization for all kinds of reasons related to our business models. And, and, and I try to be pretty honest about that piece of it, and, and, and we can talk through it in detail, but one of the, the the core points I'm making in that section is that particularly in the media, but it's true for, for politics more broadly too, as you say, Joe, is that we think a lot about the left-right political divide, but that's a divide we actually understand pretty well. Like I'm a liberal, but right. if you ask me to model, to spin up a mental model of a counterpart of mine on the right, I can do it. I can tell you like how Ron Johnson thinks about things. I don't like to think of Ron Johnson as my counterpart, but I, I can do it. I've done the work on right. this. Um, what we don't think about well is the difference, and, and and this is true in the media too, is the difference between the interested and the uninterested. And, and this is a really big deal. So I, I track research in the book that there is this puzzle 
in American political media, which is that over the course of the 20th century, political information went from scarce to abundant. You went from having, you know, a newspaper or a couple like a TV network that did the news sometimes or, you know, a couple of them, then all the way to like cable news, blogging, which is where, where Joe, you and I first met, um, podcasts, Twitter now, you know, every newspaper in the world is at your fingertips, like a bazillion channels on cable. And so why, when you relax the constraint on information, did you not get a much more highly informed populace, right? Why did we not all become like political philosopher kings? And the answer, and this is really, I think, pretty interesting because they, they've done studies on it, is it as we got more choice, two things happened. One is that people who wanted to know a lot more about politics could, and we do. The other is that people who don't want to know much about politics don't have to. And so we actually polarized by interest. So it used to be that maybe you did TV because you liked I Love Lucy, but you're watching when the 6 p.m. or the 8 p.m. or whatever it is news comes on. So you actually get a fair amount of ambient political news. You you subscribe to a newspaper because you care about the sports page, but you look at the front page occasionally. It's right. got politics on it. But now you don't. Now you watch um, Comedy Central if you're into if you're into that kind of that kind of show. There's no news on Comedy Central uh, except for maybe The Daily Show. Um, now, you know, you go to actual sports sites. Maybe you read, you know, the team site that you like on SB Nation. And so there's this yawning divide between the politically hyper-engaged who now have more information at their fingertips than has ever been true in human history and the politically disengaged who basically never need to come into contact with politics if they don't want to almost at all. And like that division is pretty profound for a lot of reasons. But one of them, which I think you're maybe getting at a little bit in, in your intro, Joe, is that both media elites and political elites are increasingly catering to the politically engaged in ways that are reducing their effectiveness and then also increasing polarization among, you know, the the, the disengaged or, or lower engaged voters. The more engaged people actually have it wrong, more wrong about what the other party, what they think of the other party. I mean, I, I remember uh, talking about, you know, the Democrats believe that 44 percent of Republicans earn more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year um, when it's only really two percent. And, it, you, know, you know, the Republicans thought that, that uh, African-Americans made up like two or three times uh uh, the base of the of the Democratic Party that we had such totally di- disparate views of each other, uh, and those are the people that are focused and and paying a lot of attention. Think that in the meantime, you have all these people who, like you said, are sort of uh, they're they're they have all these other channels, all these other platforms to consume. Uh, you know, you can become. Uh, uh, you know, follow, uh, you know, hey, chess could be the thing you're really into and you can get more of that than you ever could have been before. But you're you're just have no interest in politics and have turned away from it. The two parties pulling further apart are are making their participation even less likely uh, of those people that are disinterested. And yet at the same time, we're at this, I think, critical place for our democracy uh, in, you know, 2022 and 2024. And I'm not talking about Republicans versus Democrats. I really am talking about uh, uh, the democracy itself. Uh, how do you, you know, trying to get the, we've, we've pushed these uninterested people. Well, we haven't pushed them. They've chosen to not, you know, other pursuits uh, and our politics 
seems so worse than it did probably when they weren't interested in it anyway, that it's, it, it could, it just seems almost like a death spiral if we don't, if we don't fix it somehow. Is not great. So let me add in a couple more problems while we're, while we're sitting here in the great. doom and gloom, marinating, <laughs> marinating in, in the shitstorm. One of the things the book is about is, a, is the way in which the American political system is designed for compromise. It requires very un, and unusually high levels of, of consensus to operate compared to other international political systems. But as the parties have become more polarized and the Republican Party in particular has become more radicalized, that kind of compromise is not only harder to come by, it's actually um, often irrational for the opposition party to offer. So what that means is that less gets done. Uh, uh, like parties win elections and then they come into power and they can't do a lot of stuff that they said they were going to do. And one reason this is important to the conversation we're having here is, you know, take a voter who doesn't like politics very much, but they still care about their own lives. So one way you might have changed that voter's mind, move them around is in past periods of American politics to have helped them through policy. You know, they benefited from the New Deal or, you know, they got Medicare or they got Ronald Reagan's tax cuts. Right. And these things did actually change voter ideas of which parties they were for. You know, not everybody's, but but certainly on the margin. But as American politics becomes more gummed up, more polarized and then more paralyzed, the ability to speak clearly to voters through policy weakens. So if you don't like politics, following politics as a story and frankly, and I, I obviously cover politics as a, as a storyline professionally. I don't know why you would like it. It's unpleasant. I don't really like reading about politics. I don't really like writing about it. It's it's important, but it's not fun. It's conflict oriented. Terrible things keep happening to people. Like I get it. You know, there's way better you know stories to follow out there. But you may not like following it, but you may still care what happens. But the less it actually happens, then the less. Uh, opportunity there is for an event, a policy to, you know, or a, or a period of party governance to transform your politics. So you might imagine we could break out of the polarization spiral actually by good policy, right? That's like the, that's like my right. utopian view of things. You know, Joe Biden comes in, they win the Senate, they have the House, they pass their, you know, public option in, in, in Obamacare, they pass a, you know, universal pre-K, they pass all these things that they've promised that would really help people. And I think if they did it, that could change a fair number of people's politics on the margin. Sorry, if they did it, that could change a fair number of people's politics on the margin. But they are not going to pass most of those things because of the filibuster, because of you know all of the structural impediments that, that we know about. And that means for these disengaged voters, the thing that could change their minds and reattach them to politics won't happen. So they are in some ways right to, to pull back and think, ugh, like it's just a lot of people fighting and, and, and why does it really matter for me? Um, obviously, it's not what I believe, but the, the less we're able to, to act through policy, the more people are going to believe that. Well, Ezra, I, I think I heard you say I, it was it was years ago. It was when you were talking to Justin Amash, who is basically he kept hearing from people that would say, "I don't really care how big the government is or what it does, as long as it hits these like really hot button issues that I'm for." You know, in this case, it was for Trump about. So, how does how does that fit in here? Yeah, in general, I think that symbolic cultural collisions dominate as policy recedes. So. Imagine two conditions here, like one where there is a 
ongoing legislative process that we're all pretty sure is going to end in, you know, a big like Medicare for all style public option that any American can access with like heavy subsidies to get into it if, if you want it versus kind of what we're in, which is like bipartisan negotiations about infrastructure. They're going nowhere. I think in the first condition that would be the dominant story. In the second condition, when I log on to Twitter and I look at what's going on in cable news, it's a lot of people fighting over states banning critical race theory and curriculums. Like that's what's been going on in my right. feed this week. And my feed, like you can imagine, is a pretty policy centric feed, actually. So like compared to what most people are catching, like I'm catching more people who want to talk about the economy and, and, and healthcare. And I don't want to say these other things are unimportant because they're not. Cultural fights are very important. Um, fights over curriculums are very important. But I think something Donald Trump on some level understood was it in an era when people become cynical about whether or not politics is going to do anything to solve their problems, then they really, really begin to, or at least some of them really begin to prioritize whether you seem like a champion for them in the cultural status oriented collisions of the public sphere. And so I would like to see – I do not believe you're going to get away from that. I mean look at history, right? It's not like this was a strategy invented in the year of our Lord 2016. But nevertheless, I do think the alternative path where you can neutralize those kinds of figures by you know, actually governing really well and then you can realign you know, political periods around effective governance, like that path is closing off more and more as a filibuster kills it. Which is, again, why I am such like an endless broken record on things like the filibuster and gerrymandering and the things that are detaching American politics from voters being able to register their choice at the ballot box, see you know the, the people who got more votes, take power, and then see those people enact the agendas that the voters wanted, right? Like that should be the feedback loop of American politics, but in America it is broken. Do you see uh, – I think you wrote – uh, you know, you wrote about Biden's first hundred days, and, you know, and focused on the Senate Democrats. And you pointed out that uh, they passed, you know, unusually partisan legislation. And you said it was a good thing for the country. Um, you got you, you even got close to saying don't fall in the trap of bipartisanship. But the, the first hundred days seem a long time ago now. Does this still hold up in, you know, in the face of what the GOP has become? I mean, in a lot of the things you did write in the book, I think were written, I, th I think, before I was thinking in terms of, the, you know, sort of an autocratic movement. Uh, you know, I still think a lot of our conversation about these two parties, when one of them clearly is, has gone off the rails. But how do you assess Biden at this point and, and I mean, what I'll, he's I'll say on the book, the book is heavily about the GOP's turn against democracy. And why that's happening, what the structural underpinnings right. of it are. So I don't think that's true about the book. I think if you okay. read the book, there's a pretty straight line from what I'm arguing is about to happen to the GOP to where we end up. That's one of the predictions I think the book really gets right. There are things the book got wrong in the ensuing year, but not that one. Like I have a long section in the conclusion and in the chapter before it about how a party that routinely now wins without winning a majority of the vote is going to necessarily turn against democracy and elections and yeah. like why that's created a distinctive form of danger within the Republican Party. But but to your point about Joe Biden, so the first hundred days, you know, were fast moving and impressive. Bipartisanship, I will say don't fall into the trap of bipartisanship simply because it is just now a trap. There isn't bipartisanship. Like it's a weird thing to say because the word almost compels you to believe like the 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 possibility is there. But again, this is the central theme of the book. 
bipartisan compromise was different in an era of non-ideologically polarized parties, to say nothing of a non-radicalized Republican Party, which is also what's going on in a lot of that period. And we can talk about why that period changed. But to, to what's going on right now, I think there's a really, really big problem, which is that we still have this yearning for bipartisanship in a political system that no longer lends itself to it, but that does need a certain amount of it to function. And so that's basically a math problem with no solution. Like this is what I'm always trying to tell people. You can't like say, oh boy, it would sure be great if we had bipartisanship, but if you don't have a way to get it and actually get governance out of that, then you don't have it. Like I actually think for this era in American politics, we should restructure the system so partisan governance on both sides is more possible. And one of the, the points I make in a, in a subsequent column, I think that same one, the no, that is the same one, the 100 Days column, is that there is nothing intrinsically better about bipartisan legislation. In fact, it's often worse. Bipartisan legislation, you're basically taking the lowest common denominator of what both parties will support as opposed to another way of imagining how this works, which is one party wins an election, they implement their agenda, if the American people don't like the agenda, they give the other party uh, a, a, a chance to try implementing their actual agenda. And you kind of go back and forth and the American people get to pick the best of both sides. It is a very strange conceptual framework to say that the best ideas are the ones everyone agrees on um, as opposed to the best ideas or sometimes like the most intense and risky plays from one side or the other. We don't think this way like in business, right? We understand that it wouldn't be good if what industries produced is like the consensus estimate of like what they can all agree on. You want a lot of different players trying a lot of different things. And then in this case, the the deciders, consumers can make their judgments. I think politics should work that way too. Like I think that it should have been, I think it should have been easier for Obama um, to implement his agenda and he should have been able to do more of it. Um, I think if you had done that, and by the way, if you had a more small D democratic system, you wouldn't have had Trump one way or the other. But nevertheless, like let's say you don't, let's say you get Trump. I think it should have been more possible for Republicans to do their agenda. Um, I, I really do. Like I've, I, we argued at Vox for getting rid of the filibuster in the Trump years. So like we've been, I've been consistent on this. Um, and then now I think Joe Biden, the Democrats should be able to pass the policies they think are good policies. And then I think I trust the American people to look out for their own interests. What I don't trust is Joe Manchin and Susan Collins to be the deciders of what every American's interest is to say nothing of Mitch McConnell. Yeah, I don't want to say that I, you're right about your book. I, I miss sort of uh, misspoke about how I was. I was at trying to ask, like, since the book has gotten worse. I mean, is it, is it you know, have you, has that impulse um, gotten scarier to you? Because it just seems to me that, uh, you know, and I've put it this way. I mean, the mansion, um, because the, the term bipartisanship is something we all yearn for. But the problem is you're, you're right now trying to negotiate with hostages. Right. It's it, it, we're, you're not he's not trying. There's no one over there to, to negotiate with in a bipartisan way. And the way we think about it, trying to get 10 votes, it's not going to 10 of them to come over. It's not going to happen. And it, and even Romney and, and some of the others will only be able to go so far again, held hostage um, by by a movement that's actually, you know, taking control of the party. Um, you know, by the way, your piece on Manchin, I think yesterday um, you know, it's very clear-eyed. I thought you called it, you know, you called him a magician. I, I think you and I agree on how hard his job is uh, in deep red uh, West Virginia as a Democrat. Um, but you did point out that Manchin's pursuit of bipartisanship can actually enable 
Republican partisanship. I mean, I, you think you seem to think there might be a path here. Uh, what is it? For so him? what I'm trying to do in that column is take this from Joe Manchin's perspective. So as you say, like I do want to establish for liberals and people frustrated with Joe Manchin that he is a unicorn. That the entirety yeah. of the Democratic Senate majority, its entire possible agenda, it it rests on his broad shoulders, and he shouldn't exist. You can talk about the amazing feat of winning the two Georgia seats. You can talk about all kinds of uh, elections that excited people over the past couple of years. Joe Manchin is the Democrat who has won the hardest seat. If you look at the Republicans, so if you look at 538's state, state rankings, West Virginia is a 35-point Republican lean, a 35-point Republican lean. The Republican representing the bluest state is Susan Collins with a four-point Democratic lean. So like, what Joe Manchin is doing is extraordinary in politics. He's also very frustrating. Um, but that the the frustrate the frustrations I have with him are probably part of why he succeeds in West Virginia. So one, it is my view that at least you know until Democrats can win more seats, they have to take Joe Manchin and like what he's bringing to the table very very seriously. I feel very differently about Manchin than I feel about say Senator Cinema, who I think is just a grandstander and I think um, is. <sighs> Very, very frustrating at a, at a different and, – and I think her approach to politics is a lot shallower, frankly. Um, that said, Manchin can do this well or he can do it poorly. I take Manchin at his word that his central political commitment is actually bipartisanship. It is very much not mine. We've established that. But that doesn't matter. I'm not going to convince Joe Manchin and Joe Manchin is one who holds the key vote. So what I am arguing in that column is that there are ways for Joe Manchin to actually achieve what he wants. But he's got to be careful not to fall into the trap of praising or prioritizing the aesthetic of bipartisanship over the pursuit of it itself. So Manchin can force Republicans to come to the table as much as Democrats. He needs to use his leverage symmetrically. And, and, and what I argue is that actually while I was writing the column, Manchin came out with this sort of compromise voting rights bill. And it doesn't include everything I want in it. It has some things that I don't love in it, like the, the voter ID dimensions. But Man, you, if you got rid of partisan gerrymandering and you made Election Day a right. holiday and you passed a John Lewis Voting Rights Act, like I would take that in a second. And not only would I, but Stacey Abrams has said she would take that in yeah. a second, too. And so, like, listen to her. But so Joe Manchin now has a choice, right? Is that a piece of paper? And when Mitch McConnell, as he has already done, says we're not going anywhere near that, he gives up? Or does he say, hey, Republicans, listen, I am happy to force the Democrats to vote for a compromise bill, but then you guys have to show up too. And if you don't, then I'm going to work with the Democrats and, you know, using a filibuster exemption or whatever else right. and pass either my bill or a stronger HR one. Like I say in the, I say in the, the column that he can give, he can threaten both sides with what they fear most on voting rights for Democrats. That's nothing. And that is a threat he has been deploying against them for Republicans. What they fear most is everything. And that is a threat that Joe Manchin has not been deploying against them. So, being committed to bipartisanship in this age means being symmetrically committed to bipartisanship, not asymmetrically committed to it, right? Um, he has to actually force Republicans to the table. And then there's a filibuster set of questions where he has like painted himself into a corner, but there's a, a certain reform that it looks like he is open to that you could probably sell as strengthening the filibuster. I mean, I would get rid of the filibuster in two seconds, but you know, what he is talking about is uh, a reform where instead of the way it works right now, basically you never have on the floor round the clock debate filibusters. But one reason you don't have them is the burden they place is on the majority. So in order to break one of those filibusters, you need 60, 60 senators present and voting uh, to break it, whereas you only need one member of the minority on the floor at any given time. 
Uh, you can flip that. So it could be the case that in order to keep debate going, you need 40 or 41 members of the of the filibustering side out there on the floor fighting out their issues. And as soon as they falter, because that is a very, very exhausting thing, and maybe it takes weeks or months for them to falter, but they probably will, then the majority can can call the can call the question and, and move forward on the vote. And Manchin suggested uh, in a in leaked audio that he's open to that reform. And again, that is not how I would like to see the filibuster handled, but that would be a much better equilibrium than the one we're in now. Like that would set up a situation where Democrats really could decide to say, okay, we're just gonna spend as long as it takes. You know, like Republicans could hold the floor and like we are just going to like wait them out on this. And like it's worth it to us to do that. Like we are going to have the great national debate. And at the end of this, we're going to pass this goddamn bill. And, you know, they should. The Democrats are essentially worried right now that if they go down this road with the filibuster and this is what you're seeing online a lot. As soon as the Republicans take charge, then they're going to do the same thing and be able to kind of exploit it. But I think to your point, you're basically saying that's actually the way to govern because then you can actually get these policies done and throw it to the voters on the merits. Yes. Um, I You need to set rules for both sides. And I think the incentives of governing are better than the incentives of obstruction. So like, let me give an example of what I think Democrats have in their head when they worry about this. So Republicans come in and in a filibusterless world, they could have – they tried to repeal Obamacare through budget reconciliation. So they had to write a sort of even weirder than they would normally uh, approach to, to repealing Obamacare. So they still couldn't get 50 votes for it. So I'm not sure they could have done this under any circumstance whatsoever. But imagine they could. Like this is what you'll hear from Democrats. Um, and they had repealed Obamacare, right, because they could have just like done a clean repeal bill um, and and put something bigger in its – I don't know what they would have put in its place. Probably nothing. So – if you believe, as I do, that health insurance is important in people's lives, well, then my view is that a, a political party coming into power and ripping health insurance from 20 million people and throwing the entire system into chaos would be punished by the voters at the polls in the next election. I think that is a sufficiently salient event in people's lives that it would have a political effect. And then it would also change the incentives for one who supports the Republican Party and what the Republican Party does in the future. Sometimes when parties do things and they touch the hot stove long enough and they get burned badly enough, they don't want to touch that stove again. Republicans do not wander around these days trying to repeal Medicare. Uh, and so like, I think that, that that's healthy. Now, will Republicans in that world pass things I don't like? Absolutely. Absolutely. My view is not that every Republican policy is actually uh, is unpopular. But I think that like the reason I tend to side with Democrats on their agenda now is I think their agenda is better. And I think if they passed it, people would like it because it would be good for them. And the reason I don't side with Republicans, I think their agenda is bad to the extent it exists. And if they passed it, people would hate it because it would be bad for them. And I don't think I'm being ridiculously naive here. I think that this is like actually the truth of the situation. You know, so either Republicans would now be playing with live ammunition and would have to come up with a more popular agenda or there'd be significant electoral rever uh, um, reverberations, either because people enjoy what the Democrats have done for them and force Republicans to respond or because people are pissed at Republicans taking away all these things they like and, and they respond to that. Um, instead, the thing where like we ask the public to recognize that things aren't happening because of obscure congressional rules being used to gum up the agenda, like it's ridiculous. Uh, it's a ridiculous way to ask people to hold um, voters, uh, to hold politicians accountable.
Yeah, and in that in that way, the filibuster is actually protecting Republicans from themselves, right? I mean, yes. in other words, they they, they promise they're going to ban a woman's right to choose. They can't do it because they can't pass the law, and it wouldn't be you know the whole thing. Every I mean, any anything that they would want to do, they get to dodge by saying we can't can't. And uh, as long as that filibuster's there, but if they had to do all the things they promised, I I'm with you. I think. Um, Give them a couple of years of that, and they, you know, the, the, they would uh, have destroyed themselves with p- bad policy uh, or policies that weren't popular because they had taken rights or something else away uh, that that that, that uh, got them thrown out. Um, the, on the other side, though, I know uh, you said that you've got problems with cinema, but it's the same problem, right? Right now, the Democrats have to be the by within the Within our the Senate majority, they have to be. They're the the one place where bipartisanship has to happen in the caucus. In other words, um, if she goes, but I mean, one of the things you can't have happen here is you know is you don't want to create uh, someone switching parties like Jim Jeffords did um, uh, that switched the uh, the majority in the Senate uh, in the middle of uh, uh, the W. Bush administration, I think it was. Uh, and so they are captive to that to that 50 vote, you know, majority right now, including her. Um, and so hopefully Manchin can can bring everybody together. And, and I agree with you about forcing the um, or you're going to get everything to the Republicans. But it but we've got to bring the all 50 along, including cinema. Yeah, Democrats have no trust on that. I don't have to like cinema's politics to right. <laughs> know that you know that Democrats need our votes. I find cinema to be a very frustrating figure, and I think that the well, a lot of a superficiality do. of her approach to politics and the arguments she makes in politics deserves to be called out. I don't really see cinema as a good candidate for a Jeffords style switch, though. When Jeffords made that switch, Vermont was becoming a very blue state, as it is now, right? It's an yeah. extremely blue state. So he was going with the the tide of his state. If cinema switched parties, she would probably end her political career. When I talk to people in the Senate, they don't believe cinema is going to be the lone holdout really on anything. Uh, Manchin is a real candidate for a switch or certainly a switch right. being an independent figure. I don't think cinema is. So – you know, I, I tend to think of Manchin as like the key hinge figure in a lot of this. Uh, I don't think, you know, Cinema will vote to get rid of the filibuster, say. But short of that, I think she's probably going to show up on the votes Democrats need her on. Whereas, you know, Manchin really could improve his own political standing by foiling like everything the Democrats do. And, you know, it would it would only make him more popular. There's a good episode of the of the Daily where Jonathan Martin was talking about an interview he did with Manchin and Manchin basically said to him, like, what are they going to do? They're going to come. The Democrats are going to come campaign against me in West Virginia. Like nothing they could possibly <laughs> do would help me more. Yeah, you know, so he's in a very, very distinctive position. What do you what would you say to progressives? I mean, a lot of a, a lot of people who listen to this show are, you know, in the progressive side of the of the party. Uh, how, how best what can they do to to be helpful in all this? Uh from your perspective, you know, I try to give good analysis of politics. Uh, you're 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 the guy who knows how to win elections and, and mobilize people. <laughs> so so I'll I'll let you answer that one. Okay. Well, uh, look, I think a lot of it is to to uh, to give 
people like Manchin some room uh, and the benefit of the doubt until they and, you know, be forceful. But we we as a party, uh, progressives need to know that right now, uh, you know, uh, making a, a whole bunch of demands actually, particularly in the interested, uninterested uh, media chamber that you talk about in the book, uh, actually can end up uh, helping uh, push the uh, yeah, buttons I mean, on the, the Republican thing I would say, side. Look, I think the question of how any individual person gets involved in a Senate debate beyond like, you know, writing letters to the senators, that's hard, you know. But but I do think if you're to, to what you're saying, I think a question right now is how people can get a more realistic sense of the politics of the country than the one they often have. Right. How do you you know, if, if you're on Twitter all the time and like that's the Paul and, and, you know, cable news politics, like you're getting something really, really skewed. And I'm not saying I know the answer to that. I always tell people I say in the book that I really, really, really urge people to get involved in politics locally. If like 100 percent of your political energy is national, like you you want to rebalance that to 70, 30, you know, you know, where 30 percent is, is actually getting involved locally, because even just even if your area is very, you know, red or blue, you will just find the complexities of that, you know, striking. I mean, I live in San Francisco now and nothing will educate you faster about the pathologies of very liberal governance than paying really close attention to governance in San Francisco or, or California. I'm not saying it's all bad. It isn't. But but it, if you spend all of your time in the national red-blue divide, it's very, very, very healthy to, to one, that you can be involved locally because you can have a lot more influence there. But two, it just it will complicate your politics in useful ways and, and remind you that a lot of people showing up in politics have much more unusual and divided and like less ideological reasons for being there and ways of interpreting and absorbing what's going on than we tend to see in the nationalized political debate. Yeah, I also I think that's also been a problem of my party for quite a while. We've the party as a whole, the donor base, the the activist base have been much more focused on federal races, you know, presidential races, while the Republican Party, the grassroots, um, uh, and, and and the donors uh, were much more focused on local elections, and and then you know and then moved up uh, uh, towards the national stuff. Um, Ezra, I know we're short on time here, but I, I didn't want to let you go before asking this. So, uh, Joe and I have worked for over a decade now on a lot of these kind of animal protection causes, everything from Prop 2 in California to the initiative a couple of years ago that kind of strengthened the, the cage-free provisions. Uh, you wrote a column a couple, a couple months ago now, the, the, the moonshot for, for meatless stuff that a, a lot of our friends like Josh Balk and Paul Shapiro and a lot of the people in that kind of meat-free meat movement have been really excited about. I wanted to get kind of your take on, on where things stand there and, and, and kind of what's going to, where you see the kind of awareness and, and how we keep growing that movement. I mean, so that column is about the possibilities in um, cultured meat, which, you know, the the kind of meat that's going to be grown on cellular meat grown in scaffolding and, la- you know, in, in breweries, basically. And then um, uh, plant-based meats, which have had huge, huge, huge technological leaps in the past couple of years. Think about Impossible Burgers and Beyond Meat Sausages. And I love all that stuff. Look, you're not, I'm a vegan. I care a lot about animal rights and animal suffering. And I will tell you with like perfect certainty, you're not going to get most people to become vegans. 
not in a world not set up for it. And so I think the nearest term way to make a really dramatic difference in the number of animals you raise for food, which is to say the number of animals we inflict like horrible lives of suffering on for the most part. And I'm not talking here about like individual regenerative farmers, but that is not the food most people eat. Um, it's not the food basically like to a first approximation, like almost anybody eats like the, it, it really is factory farming that is p- providing the, the majority of the, the meat people consume the vast majority of it. And then, you know, the other effects, right, climate change, pandemic risk, antibiotic resistance, I think uh, basically making this kind of industrial animal agriculture irrelevant for people to get the meat they want to eat is the the most promising path forward right now. Not to say the only thing that will happen or need to happen, not to say that will replace 100% of meat or even should, right? Like I don't really have an, a huge issue with small-scale farming or, you know, people – the question of whether or not a cow that has been raised in a respectful and gentle manner, like if it's immoral to kill that cow for food, I don't have a strong position on that. I don't think it's like it's not a it's not a political question i would get myself very exercised over so i would like to see you know given the the very very um rapid advances in this field right now i would like to see particularly the american jobs act which has all this money for for climate change technologies for r&d put a couple billion dollars towards alternative protein research uh because as much vc money and as much advance as we're seeing in that that area right now it's all by individual companies all the the individual advances are coming under patent they're competing with each other you know you want a fair amount of this basic research being done you want it open you you want it open source you want to be able to build industries off of it we've been doing this in other areas of agriculture forever right the um the traditional meat industry is built atop a huge structure of subsidies and subsidized research and, you know, um, innovation centers all over the country. We should begin doing that for alternative proteins. It wouldn't cost that much. And the potential uh, effects and benefits would be unbelievably dramatic. Uh, Ezra, that's all the time we have. And thank you so much for being with us. You can find Ezra's work over at the New York Times opinion page and follow him on Twitter at Ezra Klein. You can check out his podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, every Tuesday and Friday. And we'll include a link to his book, Why We're Polarized, in the show notes. Uh, I highly recommend it if you're trying to understand uh, where we are and, and, and start to think about how we might get out of it. We'll be back on Friday at the usual time. As always, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. Thank you. Thanks, Ezra. Great. Thank you all.